I think it might actually. Good morning. Um, I'm only reading the Ecclesiastes reading. The, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he tolls and toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Round and round goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are all full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among us, among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. May God grant us understanding of this portion of his word through our own preacher this morning. Well, friends, good morning. It's good to be with you today. Let me add my welcome to Mark's, especially if you're visiting us today. I think I counted as about 20 to 25 newcomers with us today. It's what tends to happen on the coast is that over holiday periods, our regulars disappear elsewhere and we get a whole bunch of newcomers. So our net numbers don't actually increase, but it's great to have you all along if you're visiting us today, or if you're even a refugee from the southern states who's um, decided to make a bit of a sea change. Uh, We hope you can join us for a cup of tea or coffee afterwards. We'd love to get to know you better. Can I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 in your Bible? And I'm going to pray as we get into God's Word together this morning. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that your word is given to us as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, we pray this morning that we would hear you speak directly to our hearts to guide us in the way of wisdom today. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. They're everywhere, 
They're on every corner. You can't escape them. On our drive to church this morning, I came around a bend and there were seven of them staring me in the face. Seven. They may even be on your own front lawn. Of course, I'm talking about the picket signs of the political hopefuls now that election season is thoroughly underway. Uh, Everywhere you look, you see the smiling faces and bright colors and solutions, answers, nice, simple, punchy answers to the problems of life. I mean, that's what it's all about, really. It's a contest of answers, a contest of solutions. Every candidate claims to have the right answers for fixing what's wrong in our community or in our state or in our country. And the answers are usually packaged for us, the mere voting public, in simple, sharp, and punchy ways. You know, simple answers for simple voters. Jobs and growth. Or is that still a thing? Not sure, I can't keep up. Less taxes. Only right next to him, there's another person saying, more taxes. One claims to have the simple answers to a stronger future. One next to him claims to have the simple answers for a better future. But you know, if only it were that simple, if only the answers were that simple, if only someone did actually have the simple answers to make life better, I mean, it would make the election, make the, um, who you select on your polling card, a whole lot easier if that were the case. Well, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the wise preacher is on the hunt for answers. But he's aiming bigger than just answers in the political sphere or, or in, the, um, in the economic sphere. He's looking for answers for life. And do you know what he learns? He learns that there are no simple answers to life. There just aren't. And so real life, no matter how much we try to escape it or ignore it or avoid it, is often confusing, it's often frustrating, and it's often disappointing. Now, if that doesn't get you excited for a new sermon series, I don't know what will. Uh, I know it sounds quite depressing, but please don't give up. I hope you'll still come back next week. Because as we move through the book, we'll find that the preacher's honest discoveries about life are really wise discoveries about life. These honest discoveries free him from unrealistic expectations and actually show how we can be wise enough to experience contentment and joy in life under God. I think for that reason, as a friend of mine told his church when he preached through this book, Ecclesiastes must be experienced as much as it must be studied. So I'd like to also encourage you, if you haven't already, Maybe in the next week, try and read through Ecclesiastes in one go, uh, or maybe in a couple of sittings. It doesn't take you long. It's only 12 short chapters. You could probably do it in an hour, or even better, use an audio Bible, and just listen to the whole thing. Uh, Listen to the preacher's whole body of wisdom to see what he's on about. The book needs to be experienced as much as read and studied. Now, last week, we started talking about the category of wisdom in the Bible and how Wisdom is all about observing the world and learning how to live well in it. And of course, God wants his people to live well in the world he's made, which is why Solomon recognizes that real wisdom starts with a fear of the Lord, a right relationship with the God who made the world that we live in. So keeping that in mind, let's start by meeting the wise preacher of Ecclesiastes. 
Now, we actually hear two voices in the book of Ecclesiastes. The first is the, the guy we might call the narrator. And he drops in the beginning and the end of the book and maybe a bit in the middle of chapter 7 to, to give us a little bit of direction, a little bit of context. But the main voice we hear in the book is the voice of the preacher who is mentioned in verse 1, verse 12, and verse 16 of our reading today. Some Bibles, depending on which one you're reading, it might call him the teacher. Now, we can't be 100% sure, but it makes sense to identify the preacher with King Solomon, the great king in the glory days of Israel, about a thousand years before Jesus was born, uh, who was world-renowned for the wisdom that God gave him. There's a lot of evidence in the book itself to suggest that the preacher is Solomon. Uh, he's called a son of David and king of Jerusalem in verse 1. He's got great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before him, verse 16. He's got the material resources to be able to experiment with wisdom and experiment with life. Uh, he's got these political and economic and social achievements that he's achieved through wisdom. And of course, in chapter 2, we learn that he's got many, many concubines. So it does make sense to connect the preacher with King Solomon. And what that does is it helps us connect it then with more of the thread of wisdom literature in the Bible to show that it's all part of the same story, ultimately. See, there's a common thread and a common goal. But why is he called the preacher or the teacher? Why isn't he just called the king? Well, the Hebrew name that he's given literally means the one who gathers and teaches the assembly. It's a picture's a little bit like what I'm doing here this morning. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes is not a self-published book. It's not a blog post or a, a Facebook post. It just sort of broadcast broadside to the world. This is wisdom that God's gathered people need to hear from God's appointed teacher. And incidentally, that's also how the book gets its name. In Hebrew, the preacher is called Kohelet. And when the Old Testament was translated into Greek about 200 years before Jesus, he got called Ecclesiastes. He is the Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is very closely related to the New Testament word for church, ecclesia. So yes, he is the one who gathers and teaches the church, actually. So should we listen to the preacher? Yes. He's a man with the wisdom and the resources to have some really important things to say about living under God in God's world. Well, what does he say? The first 18 verses do give us kind of a summary of the whole book, which unfortunately at first glance doesn't sound very encouraging. Look at me at verse 1 and 2. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And interestingly, at the very end of the book, in chapter 12, verse 8, the preacher finishes his observations with exactly the same words. It's like a bookend saying, this is what I've learned. This is what everything I've got to say is all about. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. At risk of stating the obvious, it's clear the preacher is not saying that everything is a bathroom cabinet. Sorry, that was a very subtle joke. But what is Vanity. Well, it's the pursuit of something for its own sake, isn't it? 
So the preacher could be saying that nothing has any meaning beyond itself. That's why some Bibles use the word meaningless instead. Meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. But this doesn't give us the whole picture of what the preacher discovers across the book of Ecclesiastes. And it probably doesn't account for the frustration he clearly experiences in his search for meaning. The Hebrew word he uses actually means breath or mist or vapor. It's something that's there one minute and it's gone the next. Something that exists, but when you try to grab hold of it, it disappears in your hands and you're left with nothing but air. And it doesn't last. Once you've you've breathed out a breath, what happens? Well, it it evaporates, disappears. Around the slopes of Budrum, you sometimes see uh, mist in the early morning sort of clinging to the ravines. It can be quite thick sometimes. But as soon as the sun peaks over the top of the hill, it vanishes. Like it was never there. Breath of breath, says the preacher. Breath of breath. All is just breath. Can he be right? I mean, it's a very depressing way to look at life, isn't it? But let's look at what he's learned. And he begins his investigation with a question in verse 3. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, you might have asked yourself that same question uh, on a Monday morning when it's hard to get up out of bed and hard to go to work. What, is I, what do I gain from all the toil with which I toil under the sun? Of course, at the end of the preacher's pen, it's a rhetorical question because of what he's already said. And the implied answer, of course, is nothing. I don't gain anything by the toil with which I toil under the sun. Humanity gains nothing of substance or permanence out of all the work and all the activity that we do, it just goes around in endless circles. For one thing, and just putting discussions about climate change on the back burner for now, our net impact on the structure of the planet is minimal at best over the course of human history. Generations of people are born, they die. Another generation is born, it dies. Another generation is born, it dies. But the mountains, the continents, the oceans, they don't change. The earth remains, verse 4. Well, think about the sun, verse 5. Comes up, goes down. Comes up, it goes down. Yes, it's a new day, but it's the same old sun. Daylight just moves in circles from Brisbane to Wellington to Los Angeles to New York to London to Dubai to Beijing to Brisbane, to Wellington, and just keeps going round and round and round in circles. The sun never misses a day, and it's entirely predictable, isn't it? It's the same with the wind, verse 6. The the wind never blows in a new direction. You notice that? The wind never discovers a direction that it's never blown in before. Today it's onshore, tomorrow it's offshore. It's endlessly repetitive. Think about water, verse 7. I remember learning about the water cycle when I was at school. How the water evaporates up out of the oceans, forms clouds which move back over the land, which rain on the land, which fills the streams, which flows back into the oceans, which evaporates, which forms the clouds. It 
never changes and the sea is never full. Or think about that fresh tap water that we so easily pour out of our taps. That water's not new. Think about the uh, thousands, if not millions of people through whom that water has passed before us. Or perhaps don't think about it. Um, It might be better that way. It's only thanks to water treatment facilities that it's not yellow. That water is not new and certainly not fresh. You know, when you stop and stand back and try to take it all in, it's exhausting, isn't it? Verse 8, the preacher says it's full of weariness. We just cannot be satisfied. Never mind the sea being filled. We're never filled, and we can't be. We can never see enough. We'll never hear enough to make us content. We search and we search and we search until we say with Bono from U2, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Because verse 9 and 10, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it's said, see, this is new? It's been already in the ages before. Most of us have probably phoned up somewhere at some time uh, wanting to book an appointment, maybe to book our car in for a service or to phone a help desk somewhere. And we've been put on hold. And the, you know, the on hold music starts playing. And after a while, we think, hmm, I think I've heard this before. Then we realize it's on a loop. And the same thing is played over and over and over and over again. You know, the preacher says a lot of life is like that, repetitive and eventually uninteresting. And in the end, no one picks up. We never get there. We never arrive. Of course, we can try to buck the system. We can try to make a mark on the world, make an impact, drive change. But in the end, it won't make a slightest difference. Because verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Around the Sunshine Coast, there are plenty of roads and parks named after people who I'm sure did something Uh, worth having public amenities and infrastructure named after them at some point. But how many of us still know who Mr. Nicklin was? Or who David Lowe was? Might be a few around here, but that number's decreasing all the time. In fact, how many of us know who our great-grandparents were? It doesn't take long before what we do passes out of memory. A generation goes, and a generation comes. 1 verse 4. Everything just goes around in circles. And you know, I think it's part of the preacher's wisdom, as discouraging as it is, that we really need to sit in this reality for a while. I've been doing this this week as I've been preparing this message, and I found it frustrating, uh, raises more questions than answers having to go back and delete whole swathes and rewrite it because I just don't think I know what he's on about. But I think that's kind of the point. Because we do need to face life for what it really is. That it offers no easy answers and that nothing under the sun can actually give us true purpose and meaning. Well, the preacher gives us a bit of a summary of his observations in verse 12 to 14. He says there, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Another, another tick that this might be Solomon. 
And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after winds. And somewhere, as I think it looks like the preacher's wisdom has turned him you know, into a bitter pessimist. But that's not an accurate way to describe it. And actually, this wisdom and what he's discovered, it hasn't turned him into an angry atheist, a stoic secularist, or a postmodern existentialist, or a resigned nihilist either. He's not even agnostic, persuaded that God might be out there somewhere, but he's ultimately unknowable. Because here in these verses, though his conclusions might be negative, he shows us his true wisdom, that he knows that under the sun isn't all there is. And so in his wisdom, he holds two perspectives in view. One is the perspective we've seen already that's under the sun, and the other is the perspective of under heaven. Of course, heaven is where God lives and rules. Which is why, even though he may not like what humanity has received from God, the preacher knows that God is the creator of the world. He knows that this is a knowable God. He's created the world, that he exists above and over his creation, and who is the source and giver of all things, whether happy or unhappy. See, we can't just have a God who only gives us happy things, and if we receive unhappy things, we conclude he doesn't exist. Then he wouldn't be God. But it raises a question, though. Does that mean that this unhappy business that we're left to live with and deal with, is it God's fault? Of course, preacher knows that it comes from God. Well, not at all. And it's, it's not easy to see in our English translations, but this whole passage is actually full of key words that point us back to the beginning of the Bible. It's like if I said Broncos to you, you'd, you'd know immediately I was talking about the NRL. Or if I said Merlot to you, you know I was talking about wine. Well, in verse 3, there's a key word, and the key word is toil. Not just work, but toil. And that word toil should make us think back to Genesis chapter 3, when God cursed humanity after they'd sinned against him for the first time. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. I'm reading from the NIV. God said to the man, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. See, this isn't just work. This is a loaded idea of work, an idea of work that is loaded with the curse. Another key word is in verse 13, children of man. It's literally children of Adam. It's pointing us back to the beginning of the Bible. And in fact, the, the Hebrew word hebel, which is the word for breath or vanity, it's another key word. And the reason for that is it's written in the same way as the name of Adam's first son, Abel. The first human being to die, born outside the garden after the curse, and ultimately murdered by his brother Cain. Abel's life must have seemed but a breath to his parents. And so all of this frustrating and repetitive and ultimately unsatisfying life, it traces its origins back to human sin. 
and judgment under a sovereign creator who hasn't just created the world, but he's also cursed the world. It's no wonder it's an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. We deserve nothing better from his hand. And so we're introduced to a new phrase in Ecclesiastes where even wisdom ultimately ends up. Verse 14 and verse 17. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Striving after wind is a, is a poetic double entendre. It also means frustrating the spirit. But it's a great mental picture, running after something that moves faster than we can move, but it has no substance to grab onto and actually never arrives at its destination, never gets where it's going. And we can try to escape it all we want through the tantalizingly simple but ultimately unsatisfying answers of entertainment, of sex, of achievement, of experiences, of relationships, even of religion. But at the end of the day, we've got to just say with Frank Sinatra, that's life. But does that mean that all we're left with is Sinatra's wisdom? Each time I find myself laying flat on my face, I just pick myself up and get back in the race. Doesn't that just sound like a whole lot of chasing the wind all over and over again? Well, if sin is ultimately the problem, somewhere around in the vicinity of sin is where we're going to find the solution. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd love you to turn with with me to Mark chapter 8 in the New Testament. It's also printed on the service outline. Let me read that for us from Mark chapter 8. These are the words of Jesus. And it says that calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. And what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So what's Jesus saying? Well, he's basically saying that if, even if we could gain the whole world, and the preacher says we can't, remember, he's been there, done that, bought the T-shirts. There is a day coming when even what we have supposedly gained won't help us. At the end of it all, the only thing that is going to give us meaning and purpose in this continuously frustrating, endlessly repetitive, and ultimately unsatisfying life is to let go of it all and follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And so the simple message of the gospel is this. If you want to really live, then come and die. Die to yourself and follow the one who died but now lives forever. It's a simple answer, but it's perhaps not an easy answer. 
perhaps not even a satisfying answer. It doesn't explain all the difficulties and, and mysteries and challenges that we face, all the whys and the wherefores, all the details of why things happen. But it's enough. Because the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ deals with the sin that makes our 80 or 90 trips around the sun an unhappy business. And it also deals with the sin that stops us living a life into eternity that is the best life because it's in Him. Now, you might be here this morning and you know all too well just how frustrating and difficult life is, how much it's like mist or breath. It might have been brought home to you by your work situation, maybe by your health, maybe by a relationship that you're in or no longer in. Well, Jesus invites you to bring those things to him, whatever they are. Lay them at the foot of the cross and in him to find a better way to face the difficulties and the mysteries of life. Alternatively, you might be here today and you're riding high and enjoying life, excited about opportunities and possibilities. The preacher says to you, don't be fools. It can't last and it won't last. It's missed. And it's been said before, but it really is a choice between life under the sun and life under the sun, God's sun. And wisdom knows how to choose what's best. How about we pray? Our Lord God, you've told us that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Father, I pray that you'd help us today to stop chasing the wind by trying to find meaning in the things of this world that are merely repetitions of what has gone before, things that ultimately will disappear in our hands. Father, help us to let go of those things and hold firmly to the Lord Jesus Christ and in him to find our purpose, our meaning, and our life. And for his sake, and in his name we pray. Amen.